Hi everyone, uh, we're here with Diarmid Campbell-Landrum and Naomi Klein and Greta Thunberg and I will be moderating. We're going to talk about uh, the corona crisis and the climate crisis and how those two combine and how we can handle them and overcome them simultaneously. Uh, first, the Emery would will start. So, yes, and we and we welcome everyone from around the world. And it's so nice that everyone is here joining us. And we wish you a good time and enjoy. Well, thank you very much. Um, it's a real honor and a pleasure to uh, to speak to this audience. Um, so I work at the World Health Organization. Uh, that's the day job. I'm also a, a proud uh, climate striker uh, from uh, throughout uh, last year. And so what I'll be talking about is that we assume that that at the moment, wherever you are in the world, you're already being affected by the, the COVID-19 crisis. So what I will do will be to give a brief introduction on where we are with that and then talk about how that links with uh, climate change and what we need to do um, about climate change. So um, I assume that um, many of you are um, climate um, climate strikers. You're part of the Fridays for, uh, for Future movement. You're missing school. Um, and therefore, I brought a slide uh, presentation. I've I, I bought information for you. You don't get out of lessons just because of, uh, of COVID-19. So what I will do is just to quickly uh, go through that sequence that I, um, that I just described uh, to you. So... Where we start um, is considering climate change in the time uh, of COVID-19. Um, and where we are at the moment uh, with the COVID-19 uh, crisis um, is something that is moving uh, extremely rapidly. Uh, so these are the, this is the latest information from, uh, from WHO, um, updated as of last night. Um, and basically what it tells us is where you are in the world. Um, you are already um, being affected by, by COVID-19 uh, cases. So we've now counted um, over uh, uh, 199, I think it's now at uh, 200 uh, countries or, or territories which are being affected by, uh, by COVID-19. Um, so it's now something that, that really has fulfilled uh, what we called it um, uh, a couple of weeks ago. This is a global, uh, this is a global pandemic. And for those of you who are missing maths lessons over on the left-hand side, uh, you can see what has happened to the trends uh, trend in the number of cases uh, day by day throughout the course of the epidemic. Um, and if you need to know what uh, exponential increase looks like, that is what exponential increase uh, looks like. So the real challenge that we have, the real problem that we have with, uh, with COVID-19 um, is, is that it moves very, very fast, that every new case uh, that we get on our three new cases and that multiplies out so it's not something that glow, uh, that grows gradually and that we can uh, we can gradually get on top of uh, this is something that if we don't uh, get on top of it very very quickly spreads throughout the world um, in fact infects large numbers of people and because it is it is a very dangerous virus particularly to the older parts of the population it therefore brings a high death rate um, in the most vulnerable parts of the population and the massive challenge that we have at the moment is that it threatens to overwhelm health services. Um, so I'm uh, in Europe, I uh, work in Geneva, live over the border in France, and, and throughout that part of the world, uh, the health systems are already, already under absolutely uh, massive strain. 
And our real concern is that just like uh, the climate crisis, um, it's those parts of the world which have the greatest vulnerability, which are actually going to be most affected by, uh, by COVID-19. It's a simple map of the world because it's everywhere. Um, uh, and as, as I was saying, on the, uh, the left-hand side of the graph, uh, that is basically the classic textbook illustration of exponential increase. Um, so that's, that's where the problem comes from, because every case uh, gives rise to, on average, about three new cases. That's what's driving this, uh, this really rapid spread. Um, the other thing that we need to, to know about this disease, as I was saying, because um, it's a problem for all health systems around uh, the world, even those which we consider to be some of the best um, uh, in on those, but it's going to place an even bigger strain on those populations with weak health systems. And this is one of the big parallels with the climate crisis. It's those countries which are poor uh, or those populations which are poor or those people living in vulnerable uh, conditions who don't have access to even water and sanitation in order to wash their hands to protect people from the, from the virus that are going to be most affected by this. So we're absolutely concerned about what's going on in Europe and what's starting to happen in the United States, but we're also massively concerned about what happens to this virus as it gets into the, uh, the poorest populations in the world. The other um, point to make about, uh, about this is that this is a disease which can be controlled. It's extremely difficult to control, but it is possible to control. And this is also then part of the, uh, the maths lesson, if you, uh, if you like. One of the, uh, the, the challenges with um, such a rapidly increasing disease is that it increases exponentially. Um, it doesn't increase in a linear fashion where you get another 10 cases every day and then the next, uh, then the next day you get 20 and, and the next day you get 30 and so on. This is a disease that if we don't get on top of it, uh, doubles every, potentially doubles every couple of days or every three days. Um, so, so that's the, the, the challenge. And what this graph shows is that, that if we're not able to get on, uh, uh, in control of this disease in an early stage, then we follow those lines that we see the different countries following. And what we end up with is a disease which doubles in, in, in total cases every three days or every two days or faster. If you look at the graph, the, the axis on the, uh, the vertical axis, um, you can see that the, those units go up by a factor of 10 each time. So you go from zip from 10 to 100 to 1,000 to 10,000. You're not going up by 10, 20, 30, 40. So that's the massive challenge that we have, and that's why it's so important to act early. Um, and that's another one of the parallels with the climate crisis, um, that we uh, are absolutely consistent in our message from WHO, that you need to use the evidence, that you need to understand the problem you need to test people for the infection, and then you need to target your, 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 um, your interventions. And so we are seeing in certain countries, we're seeing in Japan, we're seeing in, um, in South Korea, those countries that took early action, that listened to the experts, um, that were able to put into place the public health uh, measures, have been able to, uh, to, to keep a lid on this disease to some extent. So that's one of the big, um, uh, the big messages that we'd, uh, that we'd like to get across. So that's what we're proposing that governments need to do. And all governments around the world are trying to, uh, to do this. Um, and it's basically just a case of whether they have the conditions to do so. The final uh, part of this, this the introduction on, on COVID-19, is basically what we as citizens can do about this. 
Um, now, at this point, I'd like to just complement the Fridays for Future um, movement for taking the action early on. Um, and it must have been a difficult decision to, to, to basically call off the vast majority of eventually all of the, the, uh, the actions that you were planning um, in March uh, to, to demonstrate against, uh, against climate change. That was an extremely responsible decision. It was a decision that was taken early. And the reason that was such an important decision is basically shown on, on this slide. So the, the numbers are not our own, They're, they may not be exact, but I, the, the concept is, uh, is absolutely important from a public health point of view. But it, this is a disease which is so infectious that each person infects two and a half, three people. And that means that after a couple of rounds of infection, you get multiples and multiples of numbers of people infected. If we're able to cut those numbers of contacts in half, you don't cut the transmission in half, you cut the transmission by very much more than that. And if we're able to, to cut the, the, the number of contacts, the number of opportunities to get in, infected by three quarters, then you really squash the disease. So that's why it's been so important that people do the basic hygiene measures like washing their hands, but also that they restrict uh, contact, particularly with um, anybody who is at, at risk of infection. Um, so that's why it has been so important that you that you've stayed home, you stayed off the streets, and that's why your interventions are already, I would say, contributing to the uh, to the control of the disease. Um, so the next part is, what does all this have to do with climate change? Um, those of us who have worked in this uh, field for a while are used to people uh, blaming. We get asked the question: Did climate change cause uh, coronavirus? Did it cause COVID nineteen? The short answer is no, um, that there is uh, very little direct link uh, between weather and climate conditions and the transmission of, of COVID-19 or the emergence of COVID-19. So that's the, the easy answer, that, that climate change didn't cause this problem. It's probably not going to have a very big um, effect on its, uh, on its spread. So in, in some sense, you know, it has nothing to do with it. In another sense, it has everything to do um, with, uh, uh, with climate change. The link between COVID-19 uh, and climate change has a whole series of parallels. And the first of these is the one that I think uh, our uh, moderator has, um, has illustrated basically when um, uh, to call off the strikes in, in March. The principles uh, behind the response to COVID-19 and the response to climate change are exactly the same principles. So that message, which is you can't solve a crisis without treating it like a crisis, you listen to the evidence and you care for those most vulnerable in society, it's the same message that, that we will use to solve the COVID-19 crisis and that we will use to solve the climate crisis. And the other thing that, that I, I think was so important about this message was that it's a very nice demonstration as, as as well of what we need to do to save the health services because it's the health services which are going to save lives which are going to basically protect us from the COVID. and the reason that it's been so important to act early and to break those um, chains of transmission is because health services have a limited capacity um, and if we allow the disease just to move through the population then we know too many people are getting, going to get infected uh, need treatment and health services will do their best to provide that treatment and that we will exceed the capacity of the health services to cope. So that's the, 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 the graph on the left-hand side. 
And by acting early, then we flatten the curve and we give the health services a chance to stay uh, stay controlling this disease. And this is the other parallel with the climate crisis. It's the same issue. If we had been on the climate crisis, it being in the situation that we basically now now are in. so we have, I, I would say, through not being able to mobilise fast enough to address the climate crisis, we are exceeding the capacity of natural systems to cope. So that's the other part of the uh, of the parallel. But of course, COVID nineteen is and health. There are various things that we need to do um, in in order to to address the climate crisis. And speaking now on behalf of WHO. Um, in terms of the link between climate change and health, we think we've got two main objectives in order to address the the climate crisis. The first is that we absolutely need to get emissions down. Um, And that's the same whether you're uh, concerned about the health impacts of climate change or the impacts on the natural environment. There is no maintenance of human health on the planet unless you're able to protect the climate and the natural environment. Everything that underpins human health in the world, the air we breathe, uh, the water we drink, uh, the food we eat, depends on natural ecosystems and it depends on a stable climate. So the health community is actually entirely committed and is a partner with you uh, in trying to meet the the Paris uh, goals in order to protect the natural environment. So that's basically what we need to do in order to to reach the, uh, uh, the Paris targets. And pretty much, I'm sure everybody who's joining this uh, call knows that that's more or less where we are. We are we have a massive ask uh, from where we are now uh, to where we need to be in order to meet Paris goals. And again, speaking as a, a as a health professional, that is a critical challenge for us as it is for everybody. Now, I'll mention in in a, uh, in a couple of minutes what we think we can contribute from uh, the health side in order to address uh, in order to address this risk. But the main headline is that we need to get carbon emissions down, but we can also do that in a way. One of the biggest connections that we have is the link between uh, fixing the climate crisis and providing clean air. The other thing that we need to do is to protect populations against a massive number of health risks that are dependent on weather and climate conditions. COVID-19 isn't so much, um, but... The, the bushfires that we saw uh, in Australia um, uh, earlier this year and we see in other parts of the world are a direct threat to human health. They bring massive levels of air pollution, which um, is a huge uh, risk to health. Many infectious diseases are highly sensitive to climate conditions. So diseases like dengue, uh, dengue fever, like malaria and others um, are made easier to transmit by a warming climate. Uh, Diseases which are transmitted through food and water, like cholera, are also highly sensitive to climate conditions. So this is something that we have to do because we we have not been able to solve the climate crisis so far. We have to protect people's health from the risks that are emerging. And some of these risks are absolutely fundamental risks. So if you're living in a small island state in in the Pacific or on on low-lying ground in, in Southeast Asia, then climate change is raising sea levels, which will eventually um, dis- uh, displace you from your home. And I would say, as, again, as a health professional, there is no way we can protect the health of people if, if their, homes are being, uh, their homes are being destroyed. So we have to provide that protection. But the other point I wanted to make, and this is a, a more uh, optimistic uh, point, is that many of the things that we need to do 
uh, to address climate change will bring massive uh, health gains. Um, so this is an illustration of one of the most air polluted, one of the places in, in the world which suffers the highest levels of air pollution. And those are children going to school or trying to go to school through um, uh, these, uh, these massive levels of air pollution. Um, and now we can switch from a, a maths lesson to a, a, a biology lesson. Um, when I was growing up, people used to show me pictures of lungs of people who hadn't smoked versus people who have smoked. Now we can show you pictures of lungs of people who have not been exposed to high levels of air pollution compared to those who have been exposed to high levels of, of air pollution. And the bottom line of this is that air pollution now kills about as many people as any other health challenge that we have. It's about 7 million people a year around the world. A death every five seconds, one in eight, uh, one in eight of all deaths now is attributable uh, to air pollution. And that's about half of that is inside of houses, about half of that is outside of houses. And the part which is outside of houses, about two thirds of, of that air pollution caused by human activities is caused by the burning of fossil fuels. Uh, so the, so the solutions that we have to address the climate crisis will also bring massive health benefits. The latest evidence is that the health gains that we would get by meeting those Paris goals, just by taking into account the air pollution gains, would actually more than pay for the cost of it. So we shouldn't really be talking about it, it'll cost us a lot to fix climate change. We, if we do it, we'll already, um, already be making a massive benefit to health and to society. So the final couple of comments I, I wanted to make are to address some of the questions that have started to arise about the links between um, addressing COVID-19 and um, addressing environmental protection. So many people have, have noted that now with uh, many of the, of the actions that are being taken to address the COVID-19 uh, crisis, um, economic activity has decreased and pollution has decreased. You know, we're getting cleaner waterways, we're getting cleaner air. So these are images of um, uh, uh, China um, uh, in the early part of this year. And you can see the effect of the economic uh, shutdown, the economic um, measures that were put into place to, to control COVID-19. As we moved from December through into February, uh, the levels of air pollution have decreased significantly. Um, so that is a benefit, but that benefit lived. Um, and so as the COVID-19 crisis started to come under control and the economic activity started up, we saw the air pollution uh, started, start to come back up again. So COVID-19 is, is not going to save uh, the planet. And it is um, also an, in the planet, the human suffering of it is, uh, for the, you know, it doesn't in any way um, pay for the costs of the, the, environmental, uh, the, the environmental gains. And the other thing that, that we, we need to take account of is that as economies start uh, the crisis measures for COVID-19, it's really important that, that the environmental community and the health community has something to say about that uh, to ensure that we come out of this in a better direction than we went into it. There is a really big opportunity uh, as we think about what we need to do to come back out of the COVID-19 response to protect the environment and to protect health. So if COVID-19 isn't going to save the planet, who is actually going to save, uh, save the planet? Um, we're now finding a, a whole series of uh, leaders who are starting to make the connection between environmental protection and, uh, and climate change. So this is my boss, the head of the, uh, the World Health Organization. 
He's talking about COVID-19 almost all of the time at the moment. When he's not, he's also making the case that we absolutely have to act on climate change. It's a real priority for us um, because if, if COVID-19 is the sprint to save lives, acting on climate change is the marathon, which is going to protect the conditions which are going to protect health in the future. And so he will talk at a climate conference that this is the previous um, head of the, uh, uh, of the UN talking at um, making the connection between climate change and health at one of our uh, early conferences. This is uh, the, the woman who gave us the Paris Agreement, not speaking to environmentalists, but speaking at the World Health Assembly to health ministers. Um, for those of you who read Ola magazine, this is the Queen of Spain. She's also a champion of this issue. Um, uh, Meghan Markle's father-in-law, also a, a champion of this issue. Arnold Schwarzenegger, and of course our own uh, Greta Thunberg. All of these, all of these illustrations are of people who are making the connection between health and climate change, between human well-being and, and climate change. And we think that's critically important um, because people do want to save the planet. They do want to protect the environment but they also care about their families and they care about jobs. And so that's why from the health community, we're so keen to, to bring forward the health argument as a reason for why we need to act on these two crises together. So the final comments then are, are about who we should listen to um, uh, as we address this issue. And again, uh, Greta and your movement have been absolutely fantastic on this. Basically, the, the watchword is tell the truth, listen to the experts, respect the science. And this, as we consider who is most trusted in, in society to talk about any issue, um, this is uh, basically the graph that should be coming up now, is a measure of trust in different professions. This, this happens to be data from the UK. And as you can see, as you move from the right to the left, from less, tr less trusted to, uh, to more trusted, the ones which are some of the people who are most trusted in society are health professionals. And there's a really good reason for that, because these are people who are basically um, have no other business other than to protect people's lives and make you better. And that community is now really starting to mobilize around climate change. They're very busy at the moment because they're, they're working on the COVID crisis, but they will be absolutely behind you uh, as you work to address uh, climate change. And they're a really important uh, community. They're in every community around the world and because they have such high levels of trust. And they also can talk about climate change because basically, if you're a health worker, it means you're, you're an educated person who can read a temperature graph. And so you know that, that what's happening to the planet is, it, is not healthy. So the final points then, are, are, are to, to make that point, that the health community, although they're very busy at the moment addressing the, the, the climate crisis, are also absolutely and increasingly mobilized on the climate crisis as well. So many of the people that you will have heard talking about COVID-19 in the, in the last few days uh, in the media, they spend also a lot of their time now when they're, they're not doing that, they're talking about the climate crisis. So in answer to the final answer to the question about who is actually gonna fix this, well, it's, uh, I'm, I don't wanna pitch all of the responsibility back to uh, the Fridays for Future movement, but basically it's you, um, or basically it's all of us. Uh, because even the, the measures that we need to put into place to control COVID-19, re they rely on people doing the right thing in order to break the, the chains of transmission. The actions that we need to take on climate change, whether they're taken by political leaders, they need the public support. And so we're now starting to see both medical professionals talking about the links between climate change and health and your movement, the Fridays for Future movement, um, making the connection between climate change 
in this case, lungs and air pollution and the protection of health. So that's basically what I wanted to say and um, questions into working with your movement in the future. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dermid. Uh, now, before the question round, uh, Naomi will speak. We're going to uh, collect questions and we're going to have a discussion with uh, you two. All right. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm uh, very happy to be with you today and grateful to you for, for organizing this. Um, I won't speak for too long. I want to I wanna have time to answer your questions. Um, I want to pick up on on that, on that very graphic image we saw of a, a lung impacted um, by air pollution um, uh, and, and impacted by the, the, the kind of air pollution that is intimately tied to the climate crisis, to uh, the carbon-based pollution that we are putting into the air because um, in large part because of our reliance on fossil fuels, <clears throat> also industrial agriculture, um, and um, one of the health impacts that we are seeing with this virus um, is that the people who are most vulnerable, as you already heard, are the elderly. Um, but it isn't only the elderly. It is also um, people who have underlying health conditions. In particular, underlying respiratory conditions make people more vulnerable to this virus. People who have hypertension are already uh, are, are more vulnerable to this virus. So we don't have great data because we are in very early stages, but one of the things we are hearing from health professionals uh, in the country where I am speaking to you from uh, the United States, but this is not only um, going to be true of the United States, is that, the, is that um, some of the largest clusters as, uh, of outbreaks are in some of the cities that are poorest, and poverty is not evenly distributed. Poverty uh, in the United States is overwhelmingly black and brown. Um, and these are the communities that overwhelmingly have the dirtiest industries cited um, in their communities, right? Higher rates of asthma and other respiratory illnesses in poor black and brown communities across the United States, but also around the world. We know that around the world, young people were already going to school wearing masks to protect themselves from air pollution before the coronavirus hit, right? Um, and we saw more and more people um, uh, um, wearing those masks. So I think it's important. We, we often hear that sort of a discourse around, um, well, this pandemic doesn't discriminate. Everybody is impacted. And it is true that we are all impacted, but it is also true that like climate change, we aren't all impacted uh, equally. There, these crises exacerbate pre-existing inequalities and pre-existing vulnerabilities. And there are many, many layers to that, including you know, who has a more functional healthcare system, whose hospital in their area is most underfunded. Where are you most... Um, as you saw, the most trusted profession, but where are you most likely to see nurses go to work and not have masks for themselves, not have protective gear? This also follows the fault lines of economic inequality, which itself follows the fault lines of racial inequality and gender inequality. Um, so it's all layered. These, uh, you know, it is, it is true, as you heard, that climate change <clears throat> is not driving 
um, the, the virus, but it is true that the drivers of climate change, that air pollution, is in increasing vulnerability to the virus. Um, it's following those same fault lines and those same injustices that, that you're all very aware of. Um, so it makes it all the more ironic that yesterday in the United States, we got the news that um, under Donald Trump, the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, which is exactly what it sounds like, the, the, the federal agency that is tasked with protecting the environment, um, announced that they were indefinitely suspending environmental uh, re the enforcement of environmental regulations. Um, and this seems to be across the board as part of their response to the pandemic. So they're saying that uh, because of the pandemic, we will not be forcing corporations to adhere environmental laws on the book, including the laws that regulate the pollution of the air and the pollution of the water. This is not just happening in the United States. China announced quietly a few weeks ago that as it moves out of its crisis stage uh, in the face of the pandemic and now is focused on stimulating its economy and trying to get it of rapid economic growth, one of the ways that they are doing this is by suspending enforcement of environmental standards, including standards regulating air pollution. These are all standards that exist because communities mobilized and organized and fought for their right to clean air and clean water and health. Um, and under cover of this crisis, industry and government are coming together, um, using the crisis as an excuse to do what they wanted to do anyway. So in 2007, I published a book called The Shock Doctrine, The, Sh the Rise of Disaster Capitalism. Um, and, um, and that book was about the, recurrence, the recurring use of precisely this kind of opportunistic tactic. Under cover of large-scale shocks and crises, we have seen again and again uh, governments colluding with corporations to push through a wish list of policies that further enrich elites um, and create more inequality and, um, and concentrate wealth at the top. We've seen this again and again. Uh, as I said, I, I published the book in 2007. <clears throat> I started working on this topic after the U.S. invaded Iraq in 2003, and I reported from Iraq um, after the invasion about how the U.S. government at that time was using foreign occupation and the fact that everybody was focused on, um, on that crisis to push through a series of laws uh, to privatize Iraq's economy in the interests of American capital. It didn't go the way they had hoped, um, but that was when I first started looking at the intersection of large-scale shocks of these moments where, as humans, we need to be focused on, on, on the emergency at hand. Um, Greta has talked about how she has been sick, her family has been sick. This virus is real. Um, it's in my home. I have been fighting it off. I haven't been able to get tested. We've been trying to figure out how to live under quarantine. We've been figuring out how to homeschool our seven-year-old. Um, we haven't had a lot of spare time to, um, to, to live up to our responsibilities as citizens and put our governments under scrutiny and pay attention 
to the laws that they're trying to push through, to the corporate bailouts that they're trying to push through in this moment. And that's precisely the point. I was in um, uh, Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria reporting on, on what was going on there. And I met with teachers and parents and students who were finding that under cover of that hurricane um, and the desperation after, afterwards and the trauma that itself was layered on top of an economic crisis, um, that, that, that they were having their schools uh, closed down in the hundreds and being re- their public schools and, be, and having those schools replaced with private shock doctrine. I, I quoted a um, very right-wing economist who, who, who is now dead named Milton Friedman, um, who talked about how um, during times of crisis, the politically impossible becomes possible. And that he says, uh, and he and he said, our job is to keep ideas ready until the politically impossible becomes politically inevitable. To have ideas that are lying around, um, and we made a little video at the Intercept um, about how this is playing out in the context of the pandemic that we're experiencing, called um, coronavirus capitalism. And I think we're going to share that link. It's a seven-minute video. If if you feel like taking a look. Um, at what we have already seen, we've seen um, attempts to attack core social safety net programs like social security in the midst of this crisis. People have been organizing and trying to resist it. Um, but as we're seeing now with the environmental, uh, the attacks on environmental standards, it's, it's far from, from over. And the whole point of this strategy is to um, make the most of the fact that in an emergency, people aren't able to focus on what their governments are doing in the same way that you would be during normal times. But during this emergency, we have this added challenge, which in my years of, of, of covering various forms of crises, you know, from huge hurricanes to tsunamis to wars, unfortunately, I've spent more than my share of time in disaster zones, um, I have never seen anything like what we are experiencing now, where as part of responsibly uh, uh, um, uh, doing our part to fight the spread uh, of this virus, we have to be isolated from each other. And so we are losing some of the most important tools that we have um, as global citizens, which are the tools that allow us to disrupt business as usual, to congregate together as bodies together, moving together, whether that is in a strike, like the school strikes for cli- climate that you've been all been a part of, um, or whether it is a mass climate demonstration, um, you know, or, or, or any of the other tools wh- that, that, that are well known and that have, that have protected democracy or won democratic gains in the past. And so we, are have, we have to innovate and we have to find ways to not just have conversations like we're doing now. And I think it's very good that we you know, use the time that we, that we have at home to educate ourselves, to deepen our knowledge. Um, but we also have to find tools of pressure, uh, even in physical isolation from one another. Right. And we are starting to see this um, you know, in the United States where workers are, uh, withholding their labor um, because they're not getting the protective gear that they need. I mentioned nurses. Um, you know, there was a a a, a, um, a, a, a protest uh, of nurses in California a couple of days ago 
where in order to raise awareness about the lack of protective gear, the lack of masks, the lack of scrubs, which puts their patients at risk, which puts their own families at risk when they go home, they, they went outside, stood, stood two meters apart, as they, I'm, six feet apart, um, as, as, as we have all been told we must do, uh, and held signs and held, you know, I think, one of the first protests of the corona age. Um, but we're also seeing a delivery driver, sanitation worker, saying they're not getting the protective gear. So people are still finding a w- ways to disrupt. We are, you know, I think this is going to be a period of innovation for social movements. Um, but we are going to have to fight for a people's rescue. Um, and one of the things that I talk about in that video is that these moments of crisis, while they are ripe for this kind of, of, of opportunism that I describe in the shock doctrine, there is also a history that we need to be aware of and that we need to draw on where moments of profound crisis, when we have been tested uh, as people, as communities, as countries, as a global community, we have not fallen apart and sort of given too much trust and power to authoritarian leaders, um, but, but done the opposite, but grown up very fast, um, found reserves of strength that we didn't know we had, um, and won huge progressive victories. Um, Many of us have started talking about the response that we need in the face of the climate crisis being something like a Green New Deal, which is not just a narrow policy, but really uh, the plan for the post-carbon economy, uh, a plan to get to 100% renewable energy as quickly as technology allows, which is fortunately very quickly, it's politics that's standing in our way, um, but to do it in a way that puts social justice, economic justice, racial justice, gender justice um, at the center of it. Um, And so we have been developing these ideas now for for several years. Um, We, uh, progressive movements, have our own ideas lying around, which is actually quite different than where we were in 2008, when the the last time the world financial crisis, uh, the last time the world financial system melted down. we had a lot of protests uh, in 2009 and 2010, um, uh, uh, you know, in, in countries like Greece and Italy. And, the, uh, you know, we had the Arab Spring. We had all kinds of resistance, but it was mostly oppositional resistance. It was mostly people saying no to austerity policies, no to authoritarians, but not proposing a, a really articulated vision of what kind of economy would actually keep people and planet safe. What we have seen, and I think it's quite remarkable um, in, in the last couple of weeks, is many movements, including many uh, environmental movements, but also racial justice movements, um, you know, trade unions coming together to put forward what a people's bailout would look like. And I'd encourage people to go to uh, people, the peoplesbailout.org uh, to look at the, some of the principles, the five principles of what a just recovery would look like. Um, and, uh, and, and this is really just the rescue phase of, uh, of, of what, of what we need to do. And just some of the, the, the core principles, just to walk you through what they are, that health is a, the top priority for all people with no exceptions, um, to provide economic relief directly to people as opposed to, to corporations, because what we're seeing is a lot of fossil fuel based companies that are at the heart of the climate crisis 
looking for no strings attached bailouts. Um, and by no strings, it means that they could get money from the government, but not even be required to keep their workforce and pay them. It can go to all kinds of things. So we've already won some victories in the U.S. in making sure that there are strings attached. Unfortunately, the strings are not very robust, which means that you know it says you can't use this money for stock for stock buybacks you, uh, and 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 um, for other measures. It says that you can't lay off workers, but then it also says that these rules these can be can can be overridden at will by Steve Mnuchin, who is the Treasury Secretary of Donald Trump, who personally during the two thousand and eight nine financial crisis bought a bank and became known as the foreclosure king um, because that bank was responsible for kicking so many people out of their homes in the midst of a financial crisis. So this is the person who is overseeing a, what is uh, you know, a $500 billion slush fund for corporations. Um, this is the kind of thing that we need to be really, really focused on, um, that we need to apply conditions. If people are going to be bailing out corporations, um, we need to have an ownership stake in these sectors, particularly the high fossil fuel sectors like airlines, um, like the auto industry, like fossil fuel companies, so that we don't, once we get past the rescue phase, which is the phase that we are in right now, we are ready to reimagine what these sectors mean so that we are not so crisis prone. Um, what I think is really important to understand and where I think there is a unique role for young people and for your movement in particular to play in this moment is to remind people that we were in a crisis before this crisis and that there's a lot of talk about returning to normal, right? We, when are we going to return to normal? Um, normal was a crisis. Normal was Australia on fire just a couple of months ago. Normal was the Amazon on fire just a few months before that. Normal is a third mass bleaching of the Great Barrier Reef taking place right now. Normal is a crisis. Normal is what created all of these intense vulnerabilities that mean that bodies are not equipped to fight off this virus, young bodies that should be healthy. Um, normal is hospitals, in Spain and Italy and Greece being systematically squeezed by the politics of economic austerity because of shock doctrine politics during the last economic crisis. Normal is a crisis. Normal doesn't allow you to have a safe, my son to have a safe future. And so we have to have the courage the same kind of courage that unfortunately we are seeing from the biggest polluters on the planet in this moment. They are not blinking. In this moment, they are pushing through their worst ideas, their worst wish list in order to exploit this moment of shock to make us more unsafe. We cannot allow our politicians to do it. We have to be putting forward a vision of the future that, that, will, that, that will make sure that we aren't facing a series of worsening shocks like this in the future. Um, there will be people who will tell you not to politicize this. There will be people who will tell you we don't have time to worry about climate change in a crisis. And you have to have the confidence to know that you were right. What we are seeing in this moment is what Greta and so many of you have been calling for now for almost two years, which is to treat a crisis like a crisis, right? 
what we are seeing is what that can actually look like. We are seeing what it looks like when whole societies mobilize their resources to deal with the crisis. The coronavirus is a crisis, but it is not the only crisis that we face. So as we respond to this, as we move from the rescue phase into the recovery and reimagine phase, we need to hold on to that same sense of urgency and possibility that is able to move mountains to get people to safety. So I, I want to leave you with that and thank you for everything that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you, Naomi. First of all, we want to thank both of you for coming and uh, speaking with us and presenting. Uh, now we're going to start the discussion round. Uh, Greta is going to start with the first question. Uh, yes, just want to say it's so, we are so glad to have you on here. It's been incredibly interesting. And I think this is really what the world needs now. And while we all are just staying at home, we can, we might as well educate as well ourselves. And uh, yeah, that's what we're doing. But so first question to, to both of you is that, what do you think about the response to the coronavirus has been, how do you think it's, it's been so far? Would you have liked to see other measures being taken or, I mean, are there any mistakes we can, we can learn from? Nobi, if you'd like to go first. I'm in the United States of America. Um, so, um, basically everything has been wrong in the way we have responded to this crisis. Um, in large part, because it is the exact same way that this country's government has responded to the climate crisis, which was with denial. We had months, um, where we could have been preparing. Um, this actually was fairly slow moving in the sense that we saw what was happening in China. Um, there were all of the warnings before that, that there could very well be a pandemic like this. We, Donald Trump has said, nobody could have seen this coming. Many scientists saw this coming. Um, and, 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 and the Trump administration did the opposite of prepare. It dismantled structures um, that had been put in place by previous administrations to prepare uh, for pandemics. Um, and, you know, what, what clearly should have happened is, uh, he, uh, is the U.S. government could have um, used the Defense Procurement Act to um, mass produce masks, ventilators, um, all of the equipment that would have made this less deadly. Um, and it didn't happen. And so, you know, here we are, and, you know, where I, I mentioned I'm in New Jersey, which is the state with, I think I mentioned this, it's the state with the second highest uh, um, number of reported cases of a coronavirus, which is significant because it is a relatively small state compared to, to California, compared to Texas, compared to um, you know, Washington state where, 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 the, where the, the virus is present. Um, you know, I've been told that despite having symptoms, I can't get a test. Um, neighbors of mine who've needed to be hospitalized haven't even been able to get tested. What we see is in countries where they have been able to do testing um, uh, and, and, and have the equipment ready, you know, we can make this less deadly. Um, so in addition to all the kind of opportunism, that the corporate opportunism, this, these huge giveaways, um, you know, there are lives that are being lost uh, and more will be lost because of the decision to deny the science, the decision to, um, 
to to put the the so-called economy first uh, above people. Um, uh, you know, I would love to hear um, some examples uh, um, from Jeremy about about countries that have done this right, because I feel like I'm in ground zero of a country that has done it wrong um, at every turn. Um, and, and frankly, it's terrifying. Um, uh, so, yeah. Thanks. Uh, I'll just respond on what I think countries have done right. Um, the, and again, you can refer this back to the principles. The countries that have done well have looked at the evidence. So they got out there and they tested as many cases as they could possibly do and they acted fast to isolate those cases and try to cut off the, uh, the, the, the source of transmission. So, so that's what, that's been the success story. And we've seen that, as I, as I mentioned, in, in places like, um, South Korea. The other thing that there's a, a factor of success is that you pay attention to what's happening in, in other countries, that you don't think that your country is an island and that you've got the only expertise and you're the, yours is the only experience that, that matters. Um, the science and the collaboration on this has been really good. Uh, the, the virus was isolated early. The genetic sequence was, uh, was shared. The information sharing has been really good. Um, and it's, it's been up to politicians to take, to, to take that, to recognize that you can learn from other countries. And then the final point is, is to collaborate across borders. Um, one of the, the most moving things that, that I have seen in, in this crisis is that China and the Chinese Red Cross sent their uh, volunteers to Italy in the early stages of their crisis to say, here's what we did and here's what we, we think we can tell you. Part of the reason they did that was because Italy had sent their earthquake experts over to China when they had suffered uh, with, the, uh, with the earthquake. So it's that act of solidarity, protecting the most vulnerable, working across borders that is going to get us out of this. Um, and that's also what we need to take into uh, addressing the climate crisis. So you talked about the vulnerable people and the people in the front lines that are actually helping us uh, solve this pandemic and are treating uh, our patients in the hospitals. How can we, as uh, people that are not in, risk, in the risk age or generally um, people, how can we help them? What what are actions that we can take to support them and um, help them get through their day easier? I'll say a, a couple of things because working in global health, you know, many of my friends are um, uh, are involved in this response. I think, I mean, you can volunteer. There, there are things that you can do, particularly in your uh, in your community. Fantastic things we've seen within the UK is hundreds of thousands. I think it's over a million people. Sorry, over half a million people at least have volunteered to support the National Health Service because they recognise the sacrifices that the um, the health workers are making. Um, the other thing that you, that you can do is show your show your solidarity. The other thing that that I've picked up from all of the messages from my colleagues is just the the acts of kindness that have come from members of their community when they're out spending time uh, you know, putting their their health at risk, isolating from their families to, to treat patients, have been massively important for them. So that solidarity is critically important. And then the final point is, is messages that I've, I've got from people who work in this field who are saying, well, look, we're really concerned about the climate crisis and we, you know, we spend a lot of time campaigning on that. We're going to go quiet for a while because we've got to get back into the hospitals and deal with that problem. But we don't want the rest of the world to be quiet and we don't want them to forget about the, uh, the climate crisis 
just because we don't have the time to speak up about it. So I think all of those things are things that this movement is particularly well suited to do. Um, one thing that I would add about uh, about how we support the people who are trying to care for us. I mean, it depends who are caring, trying to doing their best to to care for us, but who many of whom really feel that they are not being cared for. And this depends on the country. I think some countries are doing better than others in terms of of, of providing that protective gear. Um, if you are listening in to this and you're in the United States, and one of the big issues that care workers, and this includes nurses, but it's also custodians, it's orderlies in hospitals, it's, um, it's people who work in nursing homes, homes for the elderly, um, they, because they have not received the protective gear that they need, they don't feel that they can go home to their families because they don't, maybe they have an elderly relative living um, uh, with them. They don't want to uh, put their family at risk. And so some people, there was a story about um, care workers in Sheffield that came out in the Guardian yesterday. Um, they had moved into the, to, to the old age home where they were working, um, said goodbye to their own families and just said, we're going to stay with our patients because we're not going to put our families at risk. And they, and our, and our patients um, don't have family right now because they can't visit. So, I mean, care workers are making enormous sacrifices. Um, one of the things that we can do is try to find safe places for them to go if they can't go home. So in a lot of cities, there's a lot, there are empty hotels right now, including empty luxury hotels. I'd like to see them filled with nurses myself. Uh, they can fill the Ritz-Carlton's of the world. That would be one way of showing our appreciation for our amazing care workers. Um, and you know, there's an, an initiative in the in the United in New York right now to um, because there's a lot of empty apartments because people have left the city who can afford to leave the city um, to have um, uh, care workers go staying in those empty apartments who can't go home. But I think this points to a larger issue, which is we as a society we do not value the work of care, um, and and I think that has a lot to do with the fact that care workers are overwhelmingly women. Um, and often women of color, often immigrants. Um, these are some, uh, it's interesting because we saw that chart that showed that nurses are the, some, are the most respected profession. But, it, but, but that certainly isn't reflected in the salaries that they get paid, um, in the protections that they get. So one of the things that we can do when this is over, and, and as we fight for what we want our, the, 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 the post-carbon economy to look like, one thing I want is for it to look like an economy that cares for our caregivers, that values the work of care, which can be very low carbon work if we design it as such. You know, and one of the things we talk about in the organization that, that I co-founded called The Leap um, is that care work is climate work um, because not only are care workers on the front lines of every climate crisis, um, but this, this, you know, teaching kids caring for young people, caring for the elderly, it doesn't burn a lot of carbon. Um, and care workers have all kinds of ideas about how they can make the healthcare sector lower carbon. So often when we talk about what a green job is, we picture a guy in a hard hat putting up a solar panel. But I think we should really spend more time thinking about um, you know, a, a woman worker caring for uh, somebody who is ill, caring for somebody who is young. Um, and then fight for those jobs to be well-paying, unionized jobs with full benefits and full respect for the people who care for us. Maybe that's a lesson we can learn coming out of this crisis. 
So another question to you, Naomi, would be, so right now we have been given the opportunity to uh, go green. However, because of the fall of the economy, things are going the other way right now. How can we prevent the world from going backwards? Uh, because mental restrictions are already being canceled and uh, the climate crisis is being overlooked. Okay, that's a, a great question. And and these examples that I'm talking about, like the people's bailout, and I, I posted a link, maybe, maybe you could share. There's also something that people can look up, a document called the Green Stimulus, um, which is, um, you know, we are not only facing a, a health crisis, a global health crisis, we, we are also relatedly facing a crisis, um, a, a, a global economic crisis. <clears throat> um, and in the face of that global economic crisis, we have governments designing in this very moment um, stimulus programs in order to revive the economy. Left to their own devices, we can count on them to stimulate the, the sectors, to try to revive the sectors that are very much at the heart of the climate crisis, including by rolling back environmental standards and making them even dirtier. But it does not have to go that way. And this is why I think it is really important for all of us to have the courage to propose our own solutions right now. Um, and, 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 and the green stimulus plan is, is, is collating some of the best thinking, some of the best economic um, expertise about how we build the post-carbon economy. It isn't enough in this moment, in my opinion, to just say we want you to treat the climate crisis as an emergency. We have to be lifting up the justice-based responses to the climate crisis that are going to build the fair economy. Now, um, some of that is articulated in, in various plans for a Green New Deal. They're, one of the things we had to cancel, and, and when we canceled everything, was a, a plan for a conference in London uh, about what a global Green New Deal would look like. We have to continue those conversations. We have to continue articulating what our bold stimulus plan is. The original New Deal, um, that, ha that, that was rolled out in the United States in the 1930s was a response to the largest economic crisis capitalism has ever seen, which was the Great Depression. In the midst of the, of the Great Depression, um, there needed to be programs, there needed to be plans to stimulate the economy to put people back to work. When you have that kind of activist government, and we are now in a phase like that because governments are taking a much more active role, they're marshalling trillions of dollars, to stimulate the economy, to, um, we have much more power. So if we are going to bail out these sectors, we have power to say, you need to change. Um, if you're gonna be bailing out the airlines, we need to be taking an ownership stake in those airlines. If we're gonna be bailing out car companies, we need to be taking an ownership stake in, the, in those car companies, and we need to be saying, now we want you to be making electric public transit. This is the kind of thing um, that we need to we need to be championing these types of, of of green stimulus plans. So I would encourage people to check out the green stimulus, the people's bailout, um, and we need to be doing this in every community. Uh, I think we have an opportunity here, but um, the, the 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 window is small, and and the, you know I'm still kind of reeling from how many trillions have already gone out the door in the United States, where. Um, what governments are doing in this moment is, I think, really um, weaponizing the need for speed, where there are things that we do need to do quickly. We need to get aid to people quickly. 
who can't pay their rent, who can't pay for food. But what, what is happening is governments are bundling together the human need for rescue right now to this other agenda that does not need to be happening as quickly as, as is happening. And they, the, the policies don't need to be bundled together, right? The U.S. Senate yesterday passed this, um, this, this sort of bailout stimulus monster that, that, that bundled together the need to get money to people quickly with this multi-trillion dollar bailout for Wall Street and for, for corporations. And I think one of the things that we need to do right now as quickly as we can, wherever we are, is pry apart the need to rescue people, to get money in people's hands, um, to get, make sure that people have the food that they need from this broader a plan for what we're going to do about about the rest of the economy. There are things that we can do to slow this down. Like we can have a moratorium on bankruptcy. We can say we're not collecting rent for the next three months. There are things that we can do to slow down the emergency and not allow governments and corporations to use people's fear and 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 desperation as the excuse to say, well, we don't have time to we can't talk about a green new deal or we can't talk about climate change or we can't talk about a green stimulus because the crisis is so big that we just have to act. We can't think we have to act. Right. Um, and so be very aware that that is a strategy. Pry apart what we must do now and what we actually have time to think about. Right. Um, so I hope that helps. I really would encourage people to look at green stimulus at the people's bailout. We're putting out things at the leap.org um, uh, this sort of uh, uh, this like rescue, recover, reimagine, so that we think about it as stages. Slow, slow down what can be slowed down. Don't let people push things through um, under cover of crisis. That actually there is time to deliberate over. Thank you, and I just want to remind everyone that it's uh, five past four. But I am happy to go on if you are. Good. Then I have a question for the Armid, um, and that is, how is it uh, projected that pandemics will look like in the in the future, uh, especially taking in consideration environmental destruction and the climate crisis? Are they likely to increase, or how how has that been? Well, I, I think it's a real concern, um, and it's something that. The, the health world has been warning about for years. Um, in some ways, uh, the COVID-19 took the world by surprise. In many ways, it should not have taken the world by surprise that this could have come along. Um, we've had big, serious flu epidemics uh, in the past, the last the big one in the 1950s and even bigger one uh, 100 years ago. So the, the world needs to basically, if you like, buy insurance against uh, these kinds of uh, these. Uh, these kinds of occurrences. We need to have the health systems in place all of the time, uh, ready to go, um, both to meet the needs that are already out there, but to be able to respond quickly when there is a pandemic. And you're asking about the uh, the future of pandemics. Uh, we do know that about 70% of emerging infectious diseases, um, almost all of the pandemics that the world has has faced, have come out of the natural environment. So this comes that that goes for HIV, it goes for SARS, it now goes for COVID nineteen, H one N one, and so on have all come out of the natural environment. And 
it, there is evidence that the more pressure we put on the natural environment, the more we undermine biodiversity, uh, the more we have deforestation, um, the more chance we have of getting the, of the next pandemic coming out of that system. Basically, we all rely on, a, on the integrity of natural ecosystems. Everything we rely on for health comes from those, uh, those systems. And at the moment, our pressure on the natural environment is like taking your life support machine and just hitting it with a stick and seeing, it, seeing what happens. What, what happens is not good. So we, we absolutely have to decrease that, that pressure, exactly the kinds of things this movement has been asking for, um, to, um, to stop damaging the climate and linking it, as you do so well, uh, to the biodiversity loss crisis, to, to the need to protect natural environments overall. That's the first thing we need to do. The second thing is that we need the, the evidence, we need the testing, we need to have surveillance going on, which is testing what's happening in, in wildlife populations and then in livestock and then in people, so that we're able to react as fast as possible. The message that we keep hearing um, from our pandemics colleagues, but also people working on, on the climate crisis is that we need to go, to go early. Uh, we need to act fast. But just as Naomi is saying, we also need to act smart as well. Um, you need to have the evidence so that you know that what you're doing is more likely to make things better rather than make things worse. Um, and so I'd just like to reiterate that, that point that she was making, that the, the priority um, in dealing with these things is protecting people, is protecting people's lives. And the way that we do that is stop damaging the natural environment to the extent that we're doing, um, get uh, the information you need, get the early warning systems in place, and be ready to go because uh, when the next one comes along, because we, we are expecting to see more of them. Okay, very interesting. Um, another question would be, how can activism continue during this uh, crisis? So what are we as, for example, a movement as big as Fridays for Future or generally uh, personally, how can we change and what can we do during this to continue active, to continue being active in activism? I, I'll say a couple of words, although Naomi will have much more on, on this. One of the messages I, I think in the early stages of the response to this, we talked a lot about social distancing. Um, and I, I'm very pleased that that message has been refined. It's not social distancing, it's physical distancing. Um, we need to, you know, stay away from each other physically for a while to cut off the spread of COVID-19. That doesn't mean we don't connect with each other. Um, so everything that you are already doing on, on, on activism um, is, is you know, is mainly through getting messages uh, amongst this uh, amongst this community. So, of course, this is a uh, this is a fantastic initiative. But I don't see that there is anything about uh, the fact that people will be physically uh, isolated that doesn't mean they can't be highly effective activists. Um, yeah, I think there have been some amazing examples. Uh, as I said, I mentioned the nurses with their. Um, their their uh, two meter apart protest. Um, we also there was also a protest um, here in New Jersey where I live, um, where people went not very fossil fuel, not very climate friendly, but but surrounded an, immig an, an immigrant detention facility in cars, um, and um, and were de demanding the release uh, of immigrants who were being held in detention in very close quarters. In that context, uh, physical distancing is impossible. You know, to be honest with you, I think one of the one of the things that 
that we ha- we all have to do right now is we need to be um, using whatever voice we have, whatever networks we have uh, to to speak up for the most vulnerable um, people who are in detention, people who are in prison um, are. Um, are, are intensely vulnerable to the spread of this virus. Um, so we need to echo the demands of uh, organizations that have been fighting for migrant rights, that have been fighting for prisoner rights. Um, and, uh, you know, we need some, we need, we need people out. Um, you know, we need older prisoners out. Uh, so, um, and the other thing that I think that we need to be doing, uh, you know, and this is less a sort of a tactic uh, you know, in terms of how we organize, despite the fact that we can't come together physically, um, is we are are starting to see governments who were already inclined towards xenophobia, were already using racism to win elections, um, using um, uh, distracting from their own inept responses to this crisis, their slowness of response to scapegoat the vulnerable um, and to blame immigrants and to further lock down countries. Um, we're seeing this in parts of Europe. We're seeing it in the United States. Um, I think it is so important for your global movement, which is you know, a global movement of young people that understands that pandemics, that, 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 that the climate crisis respects no borders, that we are truly in this together to be a voice against that xenophobia, to stand up for all of the forms of racism uh, and authoritarianism that are emerging in this moment. Um, <clears throat> one sort of uh, um, related note that makes me nervous in a moment like this is, you know, I think the tactic that you have been using, which is the strike, is going to become more important, not less, um, in the coming months. Uh, I think it is going to, one of the things we are seeing is that the world doesn't work without workers. Um, and workers have much more power than they are told that they have. And so we're seeing uh, workers withhold their labor, demanding better working conditions. I talked about some examples of that from food, food service workers, delivery workers. Um, we're going to see more of that. I think that your tactic of the strike is, it is, is going to be more important, not less, um, you withholding your labor um, in conjunction with workers withholding their labor on the job. Um, you know, there's talk of a general strike potentially happening um, in the United States. It might be global if we do not have the kind of response that we need that will truly keep us safe. Related to this, I worry that we are overly dependent on corporate information platforms in order to find each other. Um, I think that if there was the serious potential to have a strike that would really shut down business as usual and truly be powerful, I don't think that Facebook would sponsor it. I don't think Twitter would sponsor it. I don't think it would really have a hashtag for long if it started to really work. Um, we've already seen examples of governments with authoritarian tendencies like Modi's government shut down the internet in entire regions when they feel threatened. So I think it is really, really important 
for serious social movements that understand the power of disruption, of disrupting business as usual in order to win a safe future, which is what your movement is all about, to develop information redundancies. Um, meaning, we have to find, we, we have to be able to find each other various different ways. It can't all be dependent on corporate information systems that can be shut down. Um, so we need to have our own listservs. Um, we need to have our own phone numbers. We need to be able to phone bank. We need, we need workarounds. We need redundancies. If one way of finding each other gets shut down, we have to be able to work around that. Because the only way that we're able to stay organized and engaged and have been able to win, already win some big victories in the context of this pandemic, you know, making the fact that, you know, there are countries where people's wages are being covered, you know, until this is over by the government, that didn't happen by magic. It happened because people demanded it. The fact that we've seen rent freezes, that happened because people demanded it. We are very, very dependent on corporate owned information tools right now. Um, and so, you know, as somebody who teaches um, information science um, at Rutgers University, I really want to stress we need we, 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 I, that we are vulnerable because of our dependence on single platforms. Um, and and um, yeah, that's all, that's all I wanted to say. Thank you. And, uh, and, uh, and yeah, I, I know you, you touched this in your presentation a bit, Diarmid, but, uh, but still, um, that how, how are developing countries getting on with tackling the pandemic and what can developed countries do to help them and how can we put pressure on our governments to make sure that, that they get the help that they need? Yeah, I, I think, and Naomi has touched on this point uh, as well, we are extremely concerned uh, about developing countries, but also vulnerable populations. Um, we, we know the age groups are the most vulnerable, but we also know that, that people, as, as, as you have said, who are living in prisons or are living in refugee camps um, without even water and sanitation are in the, the worst possible uh, situation to try and deal with this. Uh, disease. Um, I think you know, governments around the, the world, because this is such a crisis, because it's so obvious that this is uh, a real threat, are doing what they can. Uh, and so we see um, you know, developing countries, we see them doing what they can in terms of testing, uh, in terms of putting out the public health messages, in terms of getting their health systems ready. And they, those, say, those same kinds of people, those same brave nurses and, and, and doctors and, and key workers who are stepping up uh, in Europe and elsewhere are doing the same in, in, in developing countries, but they're doing it with, with much less tools at their disposal. So it's clear that what the one thing we can't do is just leave them um, uh, without help. As, as we know that COVID-19 and the response to, uh, to COVID-19 is constraining economies it's going to uh, it's going to decrease economic um growth for a while um there will be the pressure that well we need to you know save money keep it at home well let's stop um trying to uh, work with uh with other countries that will be entirely the wrong response we absolutely need to maintain global solidarity at a time like this so we absolutely need those countries which uh, are from the richer parts of the world to to maintain their support um, for, uh, for for the developing world. 
because we know that that if we don't, if we don't control this, these kinds of diseases in, in poor parts of the world, they're just going to, these, these kinds of problems, they're just going to come straight back at us um, in, in the richer parts of the world. So one of the things that we can do, and, and this is the, the headline message from WHO, is that we need to be able to test. Um, so we need to be able to, to have the scientific collaboration uh, to get good tests, to, to test for treatments, um, and then as soon as possible to roll those out into the developing world. Because they, if, if, the, if the disease has not really taken hold in those populations, then if you test people, if you isolate them, then you can uh, stop or really slow down the, uh, slow down the spread. Um, so it's a, it's a massive uh, concern, um, but all it does is, is to call for more global solidarity and it calls for more uh, use of the science and evidence in the best way possible. Uh, thank you. So, Naomi, this is kind of a follow-up question. I know you touched upon this, but uh, maybe a bit uh, more on how activism from home can still put pressure on institutions and um, fossil fuel companies and uh, things that are actually uh, damaging our uh, climate. Okay. Um, I'm not sure. I have to be honest. I mean, I'm not. I'm not sure. I know the answer entirely to this question. I think that we're that we are all um, figuring this out now. Um, but I, you know, I think that there's a lot that we can do with uh, with petitions. There's a lot that we can do with calling. Um, there's a lot that we can. You know, one of the one of the the things that's happening now in the in the United States is. Um, political campaigns for progressive candidates are sort of turning are turning themselves into mutual aid networks. Um, there are some examples of of of, of um, would encourage people to check out on Twitter prison culture. Miriam Kaba's work on mutual aid. So there's there, you know there's a few different there's a few different levels that we need to look at. One, how we can help each other in our communities. How we can check in on our neighbors. How we can practice solidarity and show the kind of caring world that we want to live in. Um, and, um, and, and, you know, maybe that means, you know, go, going grocery shopping for elderly people who live in the same building as us. Um, um, maybe it means um, pooling childcare. I mean, one of the things that, we, you know, we've seen is um, sharing resources around homeschooling, um, you know, and people doing free webinars for each other's kids. And, and this is something I think that you can organize for each other at the high school level, those of you who, who are in high school. Um, there can be some you know, more of this kind of teach-ins. Um, but we also need to put a huge amount of pressure on our elected officials. We also need more people running for office. People need to understand that they, you know, your politicians need to understand that they are going to pay a political price. Um, if they use this crisis in order to leave us with a dramatically more unequal and unjust and undemocratic society and polluted society. And that, you know, as I said, is, is, is a real possibility. We need to um, arm ourselves with information and we need to call out the disaster profiteering and opportunism that is happening in real time. So, I mean, you know all these tools better than me in terms of online petitioning, in terms of using, you know, all of the social media tools that we can um, to the, you know, for as long as they're available to us. But I don't think that there is going to be a substitute 
for people actually withholding their labor um, and refusing, um, you know, like, I, I think that, that some school striking is still going to be possible within the context of homeschooling. And I, you know, like we just heard from our school district where I live that they're expecting to take attendance, even though we're homeschooling. Um, and so we're, we're, you know, we're supposed to sign in every day. So I think the idea that we um, can no longer disrupt school as usual, I don't, I don't think it's true. And I think there's, a, there, there are also a lot of sort of um, political assumptions made in the idea that homes can just easily be turned into schools and that parents um, have the ability, you know, to, to hand over their days to becoming educators. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think we, we all, we need to organize um, within our school districts, within our workplaces, within our neighborhoods at first virtually, but then there's going to be some refusals that have to happen and refusals to participate in these structures, refusals to legitimate them until we get the kind of action that we need. Um, there's rent strikes. I would um, encourage people to check out something called the Debt Collective um, that um, is looking at student debt, um, debt strikes, people just refusing to cooperate. I mean, there and and making sure that we don't do this as individuals, but we do this collectively. I mentioned rent strikes. Um, there are ways that we can collectivize our responses um, without being physically in the same room together. So uh, we're coming to an end. We have about two questions left. Um, our next question would be to Diarmid. So as you said also in your presentation, we see an, a huge drop in air pollution in China, uh, as you said, but also in Italy and countries that have been, have been very affected. And also flights have been canceled and uh, factories have also been shut down because of the uh, corona crisis. But how do you think the world will recover? Do you think uh, we can um, build up so that we can keep our... Or do you think it will bounce back or bounce even with higher air pollutions? Well, I, I think that that is the critically important question. Um, we will, we're confident, we will come out of the COVID-19 crisis. Um, and it's just a case of how well we, we come out of it, how well we, we control the situation through all of the things we've discussed. But the science will advance, we'll get better treatments, we'll get a vaccine, uh, and, and then we, we will fix this. The problem is exactly the one that, that you've, you've mentioned. There has been a temporary improvement in environmental conditions in some parts of the world, um, as you say, in China, um, in, in, in Italy and, and elsewhere. But as we've seen in, in China, um, as the economy started to gear back up, well, of course, the pollution came back. Um, and it's all of the points that Naomi has been uh, making. Um, we have the choice of coming out of this COVID-19 crisis on a different path than the way we went into it. But we have to take that, that, that opportunity. Um, as I've mentioned, the, the air pollution uh, crisis, public health crisis, the world is rightly fixated on COVID-19 at the moment, but we, we just ignore, we accept um, 7 million deaths uh, a year ar around the world uh, from air pollution. There's no reason why we should do that. Um, in many cases now, the, the green choice for uh, energy provision is actually the cheaper choice as well as it's, uh, it's the healthier choice. So as we do all of these things that, we're, that the governments will need to do to get economies uh, moving again, 
this is the time to consider, do you want the air pollution back? Or is there a way that you come out of the COVID-19 crisis without the air pollution? Is that even possible? A lot of people now, you know, in, in lockdowns around the world are, are appreciating the small things in life about, you know, having less traffic, about, um, you know, do we really need to make that journey to have that meeting or can we uh, connect uh, virtually? And much of that, much of what we were doing before will come back and, and, and needs to come back, but some of it doesn't. And the, the parts of it polluting our air, polluting our water, um, are things that we need to, to, to think about whether we want them back or not. And the final point I wanted to make on this is, is it is all about people. Um, one of the, the positive things that we've seen come out of this is the solidarity that has come out uh, with key workers, including healthcare workers. And so it's been fantastic that, that around the world, people have come out on their balconies, they've applauded healthcare uh, workers, said you're doing a fantastic job. Um, it's really important that they also think, okay, what are we going to do to make sure that when all this is over, those people are also, their, their everyday conditions are better, that they get the, the political and the financial support, because they're not just saving lives during the, uh, the climate crisis, they're saving lives every day of the week, uh, and whether COVID, uh, sorry, during the COVID-19 crisis. So they need to have that uh, that support. But but I, I think that in those principles that, that I think the, the health movement and the um, Fridays uh, for Future movement, in fact, any good social movement have in, uh, in common, which is you tell the truth, you listen to the evidence, and you, uh, you care for the most vulnerable. Uh, and so that will, as long as we stick to that, um, we'll, we can come out of COVID-19 potentially in a better way than, uh, than the way we went into it. Thank you. And... Uh... I think uh, we have been going on for a long time, so I'll ask the last question um, to to end this with some kind of positive, uh, on a positive note, and that is how do we stay optimistic from home quarantine? Okay, um, optimistic from home quarantine. Things like this, um, reaching out to each other, not disappearing um, into, into our solitude, but also I think it is important, sorry to sound like an old lady here, but we also really need time away from screens because one of the things that I think is dangerous when we are lonely and missing each other and our friends and wanting connection because humans crave connection, we are social animals, is that we try, we try to get it via our screens and we, we overload. We're not built to be staring at screens quite this much. And um, a lot of the algorithms that um, we spend a lot of time immersed in um, are built to mine our data um, and that's their whole business model. And they find that the best way to get the most data is to piss us off. So they prioritize things in our news feeds um, and, and within their algorithms that are designed to maximize engagement, which just means um, anger a lot of the time. And so even though we log on because we're actually wanting that human connection, um, we end up feeling worse because we just get pissed off and aggravated. So call a friend <laughs> instead. Um, you know, if you're in a situation where you can go for a walk, do that. Um, play a game, um, you know, don't only do it with screens and don't only do it within 
uh, those corporate algorithms. Um, uh, um, do it with, with, the, with, you know, if you're in a situation where you are in isolation with people you love, recognize how lucky that is. Spend face-to-face time with them. If you've got animals with you, cuddle them. I find that helps a lot. Um, and, um, and, 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 and you, let's use our time on screens wisely. Let's not our, let our screens use us. Let's be deliberate in how we use these amazing technologies that while they are dangerous, while they have the potential to depress us, they also, it is also an incredible gift that we are able to be in global connection and global conversation with each other. Um, let's use these technologies in ways that allow us to deliberate, that allow us to strategize, and that don't just put us in that reactive state where all we're doing is reacting to scary news. Let's step back as much as we can, look at the big picture of this crisis, and we've had a lot of big picture uh, um, talk here uh, uh, at a global scale of what it means that so many of the most polluting sectors are in crisis right now and need us, right? Um, If we are going to bail them out, we have to be able to also put conditions on that and say, this is how we demand that you change. That is what democracy means. We actually have a surprising amount of power in this situation. Um, you, You know, when the corporate world is on its knees and it is on its knees, that is a point of maximum leverage for democracy. If we are fortunate enough to live in democracies, we have to be very smart about how we use our leverage. Let's not while away the hours um, you know, in infinite scroll. Let's really use these powerful information tools to their maximum capacity. Let's also build redundancy so we're never dependent on one platform. Um, and let's remember that a conversation with a friend or time outside looking at a tree in bloom, um, or time, you know, with animals is always going to make us happier um, uh, than infinite scroll. So that's all I got for you. But I, but you make you make me feel better. That's all I can say. And I'm also going to go get my dog so you can all see her. Um, uh, we, I'll be right back. I can only endorse everything uh, that Naomi has just said, uh, particularly the part about screens. I'm taking that as a direct public service announcement to my children. Um, the only thing I would add to, to all of that fantastic advice is to think about the time when this will be over. Um, we will come out of this. If you're in a lockdown now, it's not going to be uh, forever. And I, I think that you know every walk you take in the park, if you can't do that now, every time you get a chance to or a drink with um, uh, with your friends every time you get to go to the uh, the cinema, it will be better, I think, than than before because you will appreciate um, you know the, what what you've been giving up for a while. Um, so, uh, but as Naomi has said, this has been absolutely uh, fantastic from uh, from my point of view. Um, and yeah, I'm very looking forward to seeing you all out the other side of this. Uh, and thanks to the lovely view of the uh, children and dogs. Thank you so so much to both of you and thank you everyone who has been watching this. And this will also be available online afterwards on YouTube. Um, but a huge thank you to everyone and uh, and also to, to the people who have been organizing this, making this possible. And thank you Ariadne and uh, Naomi and Diarmid, especially for coming here and giving your, your insights. It's been very interesting. We also want to help uh, thank all our tech people that made this possible. 
And the next Friday, there's going to be another webinar. So tune in to see that. Thank you for watching.